A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello and welcome. I'm Tim Farron, and this is the show where you get to hear from a Christian politician about how they live out their faith in the mucky business of politics. Of course, you might well think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin, and of course, you'll be right. But then again, so is everything else since the fall. And I think Christians should be praying for their brothers and sisters who are involved in politics in an informed way. Now, we've had a small scheduling change today, which means, you lucky people, the tables are being turned. Cara's going to be interviewing me. But before that, here she is with a roundup of the news this week. Well, last week, you may remember, I told you about the Bishop of St. David's who deleted her Twitter account for saying never, never trust a Tory. Well, the Bishop of Bangor in North Wales has now also had to apologise to a Conservative MP after she was mocked online for visiting a congregation and offering help with some funding applications to train new organists. Victoria Crosby visited the church in Hollyhead, but was then accused by another church member of schmoozing in an online post. The Bishop of Bangor, Right Reverend Andy John apologised on behalf of the church in Wales and Victoria Crosby said she hopes that in future my attendance at church will not be placed in the public domain and ridiculed. In America, a senator has asked for Canada to be investigated for violating religious freedom over the arrests of two pastors who were accused of flouting COVID restrictions in their church services. Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley has asked for Canada to go on a special watch list, saying, frankly, I would expect this sort of religious crackdown in communist China, not in a prominent Western nation like Canada. But of course, the story that has dominated the last few days is that of Matt Hancock's resignation, following the breaking of his word to the country and to his wife. Tim, how do Christians balance that desire to point out that faithfulness is important, but also respect people's private lives and let God be the judge? It's the big question. It's the question I think we should be asking, because of course we have a a new Secretary of State for Health and Social Care now. And that's a big deal at any time in the midst of a pandemic. It's pretty huge, as was the furore which led to Sajid Javid's predecessor, Matt Hancock, resigning, as you say. Commenting on the Hancock situation, the Bishop of Manchester caused the odd raised eyebrow when he said, I'm more interested in the fact that he didn't observe social distancing than the fact that here was a middle-aged bloke having a bit of a fling. The Bishop's point may have been that if you are the health secretary and you are asking millions of people to make deeply painful sacrifices to keep one another safe, then you must surely abide by those same rules yourself. If you cannot practice what you preach, then you should rightly step down. But let's be honest, the controversy in David Walker's remarks was the inference that Matt Hancock's unfaithfulness to his wife and children was of relatively minor importance. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We all need forgiveness. and We should be very slow to point the finger at others. Maybe it is Matt Hancock's wife and children who should come first in our prayers, but we should hold up Mr Hancock himself too. There is grace awaiting him, if only he will seek it. Not too long ago, infidelity would automatically lead to ministerial resignation. But in 2021, when until this weekend, it appeared that no one ever resigns for anything, Should it really trigger a political departure? Well, since the many scandals of the 1990s, an unwritten rule has seemed to have sprung up in politics, which is that you can survive acts of unfaithfulness and remain in office so long as you haven't been caught on the record being a hypocrite. 
voting and speaking in favour of so-called family values. Maybe the bishop is right, that the reason Matt Hancock needed to go was because he broke the rules that he had asked the rest of the country to obey. At the same time, though, church leaders must surely speak out, graciously and gently, of course, in defence of marriage and faithfulness within it. We can perhaps think that society in the past was judgmental and unforgiving about such matters without going to the other extreme and shrugging off infidelity by a man in his 40s as just a predictable midlife crisis-induced foible equivalent to the purchasing of a motorbike. Infidelity then becomes a ridiculous thing that we laugh and gossip about, yet of course it's a tragedy and causes yet more tragedy. Conservative MP Chris Loder recently called for the church to stay out of politics after another bishop unkindly tweeted that you can't trust the Tories. That tweet was out of order. It's right that that bishop apologised, but surely we don't want church leaders to have no interest in the politics of our country, simply becoming inoffensive, mute observers. Respectfully, while I see where they're coming from, I don't agree with either Chris Loder or the Bishop of Manchester. Christian leaders should be careful never to be partisan, but they should speak out against injustice and be prepared to criticise politicians when necessary. Likewise, they should lovingly hold out the Bible's teaching on personal morality, including on marriage. Why would anyone come to Jesus for forgiveness if we are constantly led to believe, even by church leaders, that there is simply nothing to forgive? A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, it's time to shake things up. Our guest this week is Tim Farron, the former leader of the Liberal Democrats between 2015 and 2017, and the MP for Westmoreland and Lonsdale since 2005. Did I say your constituency right, Tim? Westmoreland and Lonsdale, yeah, that's correct. Well done. Great. He loves Blackburn Rovers, running to indie music and Frank Sidebottom, but you'll probably remember his speech as he resigned from the leadership of the Lib Dems, saying the only thing that could make him relinquish that honour must be something so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. Tim, how did you come to believe in a God that demands your soul, your life, your all? Oh, thanks, Cara. Well, it's great to be on this side of the table. And uh, I, so I became a Christian, I tell people, and I believe it to be true, or I have believed it to be true when I was 18. I wasn't brought up in a particularly Christian household, very loving household, great parents who split up when I was five, but they both were very, very involved in my uh, upbringing. And um, I found one morning, or sorry, one evening, came back from sixth form college. Um, I was nearly 18. And mum, who was then a lecturer at Preston Poly, which we now call the University of Central Lancashire properly, um, and to tell me that basically half her department was seconded to college in Singapore. We'd only been abroad once in our life. We didn't, you know, do foreign holidays or anything like that. It's massively glamorous. So cut a very long story short, I go out with her and my sister and other members of the department and their families. Uh, we got stuck in a perfectly nice house in Singapore, which belonged to the college. The previous uh, tenants, who were formerly lecturers at that college as well, uh, were Christians. Um, I got the crummy room because I was the one going back soonest because I had to get my A-level results. Um, they left all their books in the crummy room um, and it was I got bored <laughs> and I read them and they were what you might call broadly speaking apologetics prophecy and fundamentally it struck me in the early hours of one morning um, sat there on a, a hot August night in Singapore oh blooming heck it's true and so I put my trust in in Jesus now that's the story I always tell people it is absolutely true but over the years, it's occurred to me that when I was nine years of age, I was upstairs in our quite an open house, little terrace, um, open plan terrace house, 
my mum and her lovely friend Yvonne, who was always into all sorts of wacky things. Um, you know, uh, every belief system under the bit of a bit of a bit of a child of the sixties was Yvonne, um, <laughs> and um, wonderful woman and um, a dear friend to my mum. Um, she and my mum and a guy who I've never met before or since, but whose voice I will never forget. Uh, who was clearly a friend of Yvonne's, implore the mum and Yvonne to ask Jesus into their hearts. And I can't remember anything else than the, thing, the, th- the fact that the thought occurred to me as I lay in bed, that sounds really important. I'm going to do that. Now, I can't help but think that now that I know that God doesn't ignore a single word you say <laughs> mm. um, and does not despise, you know, a juvenile commitment of any kind whatsoever, Maybe that was the moment I became a Christian and he had his hand on me all the time and led me to that room in Singapore. Mm, mm. So when you acknowledged it more as a teenager, you became the only Christian in your family? Yeah. Um, and actually for two months, I didn't meet another Christian. Um, and it's funny now when I, I sometimes chastise myself for not being forward enough about sharing the gospel with friends and family. I did it all the time um, in particularly those couple of months. And um, probably drove them absolutely spare. Um, I had a very good, close-knit group of friends, some of whom I was in a band with, as you may have uh, recalled awful photographs of, and they just thought it was another wacky thing for Wacky Tim to be into. Um, and, you know, politics, football, pop music, and now religion, <laughs> you know. But, yeah, it was two months, really. I went to university at the end of September, became a Christian at the beginning of August, didn't speak to another Christian until... A lovely guy called Pete, who was a very tall second year medic, knocked on my door my first night at, um, in halls of residence and said, did I want to come to a navigators meeting? And of course, a Christian a student group. He could have had no idea I was a Christian, by the way, um, and none whatsoever, unless the Lord had literally revealed it to him. Um, so I went along with him and that's how I got churched. And it's been up and down ever since. And God's not let go of me. Amazing. And what you were already into politics by the time you became a Christian. So what was it that made you want to be an MP? First of all, did you want to be an MP? Was that your first instinct? And and if so, why that and not campaigning or working in the charity sector? So as a 16-year-old, even, even then as a super, as I, when I joined the Liberals, which was two years before becoming a Christian, um, I, uh, you know, if you'd asked me, did I want to, um, you know, uh, be an MP, I'd have said yes, but only in the same sense that if you'd asked me if I wanted to play for England uh, or Blackburn Rovers, I'd have said yes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, cool, but no chance of it ever happening. Because um, even at 16, I knew joining the Liberals was not a great career move. <laughs> um, and uh, so, but the odd thing is, I mean, doing this programme, one of the great blessings is just hearing the, the, the testimonies of so many other colleagues. And people like Stephen Timms, whose, whose testimony is, is, is wonderful, really, it, it becomes a Christian, grows as a Christian, feels called into politics. And I feel slightly, dare I say it, slightly envious of that kind of a testimony, because mine is much more messy. Um, I got involved in politics because I was enthusiastic about a variety of things. Things. Some things made me upset. Some things made me enthused. I was upset about housing need, homelessness. Um, and I liked the cut of Shirley Williams and David Steele's jib. And I thought I'll be on their side. Um, and so I go to university, um, you know, weeks after having become a Christian. And the, the title for this podcast comes from a conversation with a, uh, a lovely Christian lad called Adrian at a navigator's coffee morning or something where, you know, aware of my involvement in student union politics already, he says, why are you involved in politics as a Christian? It's a mucky business. So I guess I could easily have gone into, you know, charity and other work and what have you. But I guess having left university, I went, um, I found myself a, 
a perfectly nice job um, working in university administration. And it basically allowed me to do a reasonably, you know, useful thing with my brain nine to five and have the time to run for the council, which I did. Um, and so I was a councillor before I reached my 23rd birthday. But in the end, I guess, you know, to, to answer the question that Adrian sent me, is politics a mucky business? I think the answer is, it, yes, it is. As we say every week, it is a mucky business, but so is everything else. And we aren't meant to be hermits and go and hide away. And so for better or for worse, maybe for both better and for worse sometimes, I've, I've, I've stayed with the thing that I jumped into when I was 16 before I became a Christian. Well, you're listening to A Mucky Business. I'm Cara Bentley, and we've swapped places this week, which means Tim Farron is in the spotlight. Tim, you've called this show A Mucky Business because you're obviously aware of the fact that Christians can sometimes be compromised in the job that you do. When have you felt most like this has been a mucky business for you personally? Well, for me, I guess... You know, it's very easy, isn't it, to sort of look at lurid stuff, particularly this week in tabloids and what have you, and think, oh, gosh, you know, politics leads you into these terrible places and you see dodgy dealings and all the rest of it. For, for me, I often say that I think the biggest um, temptation of politicians' face is not the glam of glamorous, seedy stuff you see in the tabloids. It's actually vanity because, uh, you know, there is a, there's a sense in which obviously... To get elected, one needs to have a level of popularity. But I also think it's more, fun it's less function. It's not just as functional as that. It's also something deeper, which is that, you know, we, we, we kind of crave love and popularity <laughs> and to be somebody. And that's the danger that we end up just, you know, being very vain. And for me, the idea of, you know, personal ambition, um, becoming party president, becoming party leader, um, I think there's some very good motivations behind my choices to go for those things and some not so good ones as well. And I think they're probably, you know, you won't, one could argue that my choices to do what I did in, and run for those positions were at least partly clouded by, you know, me being the great I am um, rather than me thinking about others, not hundred percent. And so I think it's just about, you know, check your motivation and be humble about it. Doesn't mean you have to stop these things because all of our motivations are mixed and flawed because we're sinners, aren't we? Um, but we just need to be honest about all this kind of thing. I think that, and I think that the real challenge for those of us who are Christians in politics is to stay grounded. What does that mean? That means being in good fellowship with good Christians regularly who will hold you to account and support you and to not give up your personal time reading God's word and praying. When do you think you were the most vain? Do you think it was when you first won or when you were leader? Um, I don't think it's a feeling of vanity when you win. I think it might be the the, the sense of, um, uh, some, I'm not going to blame, this is not me blaming my wife here at all, <laughs> but, uh, but it just encapsulates that you, you, the sense that you know, you're the master of the universe and you're all terribly important. When we went down to eight MPs, and it was a complete mess and loads of people who may have potentially been leader had lost their seats and all the rest of it. Um, and I was, you know, agonizing about whether to do it. You know, I, I clearly really wanted to do it. Uh, I remember my wife saying to me, Rosie said, you know, um, you need to do it to save the party. Uh, and there's me thinking, you know, yes, <laughs> only I can do this. <laughs> um, which is clearly not true. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, and I love it a bit for saying that, but I also think it pl that played absolutely to my sense of, yes, you know, this is my destiny. Well, there is a sense in which, you know, whatever you do is your destiny, but you screwing up, 
is also your destiny because <laughs> whatever you know god's will for your life this day when you get to the end of it and see what happened and so yeah and it is and it's, it's ridiculous and um but you know as somebody once said i i can't remember who it is but it's a it's a lovely and cruel line which is that politics is showbiz for ugly people you know i didn't i didn't make it as a pop star so <laughs> so here i am hosting my own podcast one day tim you'll come back <laughs> <laughs> well you were recently caught up in uh, some of the mucky business of politics yourself when uh, donations to fund your parliamentary staff weren't declared on time why did that happen yeah, so uh, so I have two organisations which um, which help me in my work. They don't give me any money; they give me staff. Um, uh, if you like, I've got four sources of staff. The, the taxpayer pays right quite rightly for quite a few of my staff. The party um, pays for some a lot of my staff in the constituency, and then in London, two organisations: Faith in Public, which is my not for profit that I set up after I stopped being leader, and then another one called the Refugee Asylum Migration Project, which kind of does what it says on the tin really um they provide me with two or three staff between them and what you need to do is declare any kind of donation either in in kind through staff or money on the official register and i did but i did it late um just you know it was an oversight and so it's important to kind of state this was not dodgy dealing but it's also important to say that it was actually quite right that i was rebuked for it because the fact is that it is possible for politicians to make decisions um, or involve themselves in you know, speeches and what have you, um, motivated, not always by the right things, but because they've got an interest, whether it's a financial or other interest in something, you're on the board of a company or you're being funded by a charity. And, you know, if I, if I vote to give planning permission to a nuclear power station and I'm a shareholder of that nuclear power station, that should be on the blooming record. Um, and so I think the fact that there should be a register and that it should be up, kept, kept up in a timely fashion is important. So, um, so I don't minimise the rebuke. It's right that I said sorry. It's right that um, that we're held to account for these things. And the consequence of all this is we've got a much better system to make sure we remember to register, register these things on time. Lots of people know you as a, a Christian MP, and some may say that's almost you know one of the most famous things you're most known for. But not all Christians obviously vote the same on on every issue. So you've often said that you don't think it's your job to force non-Christians to behave as though they were. But some other Christians might say, well, God's ways are good and therefore all human flourishing. So why wouldn't you as an MP vote to enforce God's law, as it were? I mean, I think it's a lot greyer and it takes an awful lot more wisdom and judgment than perhaps my black and white characterization makes out i think that generally speaking when it comes to issues of you know personal private morality brackets i know nothing's entirely private because we have an impact on everybody we are totally interconnected i don't think it does any good to legislate to make people to live in ways that you know comply with the bible's teaching on marriage and, and what have you for instance there's a great phrase that edmund burke used all those centuries ago um that all the laws against the godless have not saved one single soul so there's a sense in which they're not effective to do that and secondly i think it might even be counterproductive um if all they hear from christian politicians is you mustn't do this and you must do that um whereas actually what we i, I always thought that what the church's role should be on these matters is to set out clearly what the church teaches 
while saying, you know, you must make your own decision, but this is what the church te teaches. I think often it's been the other way around that the church has sort of privately tried to get the government not to legislate in small L liberal ways, um, but never had the courage of its convictions to speak out publicly as to why not. Um, and whereas I think the reverse would be, would be more effective. Uh, you obviously stayed being an MP once you resigned as leader and you seem to enjoy that very much and, and seem to love working for your constituents. Will you ever resign your seat or will you only stop being an MP when you're voted out? When they kick me out? I don't know, honestly. I mean, the coronavirus teaches us, um, as does James chapter four, I think, that we should. It's, it's good to make plans, but we shouldn't, you know, be arrogant into thinking we, you know, we know we can execute them. Um, and so honestly, I don't know. I, I love being MP for our area. I was a great duty and an honour to serve as the leader of a party, uh, leader of our party for the time I did and to be president for the four years during, you know, five of the years of coalition, uh, four of the five years in coalition. But it's a great joy to be our MP. And I think that, you know, maybe the journey I've been on has taught me that the most important thing is um, is service. Um, and uh, and that's, you know, we, we can talk about the things that Christians can achieve in politics by achieving this policy and this outcome. And obviously there are sometimes vastly significant things such as what Wilberforce achieved, but more often our job is to serve people in a sacrificial way. And I, and I love doing it, but I, obviously... I won't do it. I won't do it forever. Will there be another Fred the Girl reunion? Well, you know, um, funnily enough, I got a text last night from um, uh, my mate Rob, who was the keyboard player, who sent me a picture and he said, do you recognise this guy? And I didn't recognise him at all. So we still we have a we have a, a, a band WhatsApp group, um, <laughs> and, it, and the, the picture it turned out was the the now fifty year old uh, Craig from Bross, uh, who was the bass player who wasn't. You know, it wasn't one of the two pretty twins, but he was the one who was successful um, because he left he left being a pop star and became a producer. And he's now a millionaire. Um, so, uh, but no. So I think the answer is no. But it was great fun. It was a great stage on which to play out a friendship. Would you ever be a pastor? So the, the, the fact that I've not answered that immediately does mean I've I've not given it no thought. Um, and you know, so often. You know, people think as Christians, oh, I must go into the church. And obviously it's entirely, not everybody has to be a pastor. Um, but I do sometimes wonder whether I should, whether, whether that's a thing I could do and should do. Um, uh, but no, no plans. Okay, we'll leave it there. Tim, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> a Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, this is your chance to ask me anything about being a Christian in politics. Could be ethical, political, or even personal. Well, this week, we've got a question from Jenny in Southampton. Tim, the opposition have rightly criticised the government for cutting overseas aid. But when Labour was in power, they have never achieved the 0.7% target on overseas aid and furthermore Labour governments in the 1960s and 70s cut overseas aid. Do you think that whilst they're criticising the government they should also apologise for what they did when they were in office? Thank you. Well thanks Jenny. I always think that acknowledging your own faults and failings enhances your ability to make your point. 
And so that is, I think, something that maybe a Labour opposition could choose to do. I think it's worth bearing in mind the United Nations has had the 0.7% of GDP target for overseas aid uh, for some years. The UK adopted that during the coalition period and has stuck to it since. I think it's right to criticise the government uh, for stepping back from that. Obviously, these are times which are going to be financially difficult for the country. But it seems of all the things that you decide to make your savings in, um, amongst the worst things you could do and, and, and least excusable things you could do is to remove funding from those people around the world who are the poorest. So it's right we challenge the government. It's also right that opposition politicians should never pretend that they've got it completely perfectly right. Well, have you got a question you would like me to answer? If so, please write it in an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Well, as we come to the end of this week's show, I'd love it if you just join me in prayer for a moment. Well, loving Heavenly Father, we want to hold up to you Matt Hancock, his wife and children, and Gina Colodangelo, her husband and their children. Um, Lord, we just ask for you to move in the lives of those people. Um, we pray you bring contrition, repentance and forgiveness and healing and bless those families. And we pray also, Lord, uh, for Sajid Javid as he takes on the role of Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. And we pray you give him real wisdom, um, that he would make judgments that are in accordance with your will, that are for the good of all people, and that uh, put the, the good of our, our people ahead of any political considerations. Really, I just pray you bless him with every wisdom, every strength, and with the right sort of advice, Lord. And we just want to pray also, we see this week the Batley and Spend by election. Uh, we observe a real unpleasantness in the tone of that contest with people being berated in the streets and the literature being, shall we say, um, hardly defendable in terms of its content. And we just pray for peace in that community and uh, your blessing and your peace and protection on all the candidates and for their justice and for justice to be done in the results and in the aftermath. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, next week, we will have Miriam Cates with us, who is the newly elected MP for Penniston and Stocksbridge. We'll be talking about the politics of family life and marriage. Until then, I'm Tim Farron. Thanks very much for joining us. You can listen to the podcast of this programme online by searching for A Mucky Business. Don't forget, if you have any questions you'd like to put to Tim in a future show, email farron at premier.org.uk.